Chapter Four of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: Wanderings in Mulmain. The Oriental cannot understand how any man, much less any woman, can desire to walk about for pleasure. To him, the fact of a lady sauntering about unattended is derogatory to her dignity and implies that she is not of much consequence. I felt this all over Burma, in greater or less degree, and chafed under it. Up country I, I always took the boy with me, and grew sufficiently accustomed to his presence not to mind it. But certainly to walk attended, even by a solemn madrasee, has not quite the same charm as being quite alone. In Mulmain and Mamio, I was more free than in other places. Mamio is so thoroughly English that English customs are accepted unquestioningly, and Mulmain has been so long in the possession of the English, and there are so many Europeans living in it, that English manners and customs are at all events understood. It was therefore not impossible to go about alone, though unusual. The bungalow I was staying in was on the outskirts of the town, which made the matter easier for the ridge rose straight up behind, so it was attained without having to pass through any streets, and it was a capital place for a walk. In the early mornings I used to go up there, and look down the other side upon a rolling plain traversed by the river Adaran. Far out on the plain rose huge lumps of detached limestone rock, sharp as razors along the top, giving a most peculiar effect. They rose as rocks rise from the sea, sheer, without intermediate slopes. In one of these is the famous farm caves, which I afterwards visited, and many of them are honeycombed with similar caves as yet unexplored. I used to take the camera with me on these wanderings, in case I met any likely subject, but the place was very quiet, and I did not often meet anyone. Once I saw a bullock cart of the lighter sort, driven by a Burman who had his two children with him. I had already grown to recognize a certain type of Burman, the man with the shrewd, kindly expression that made you feel you could trust him and make friends with him. This man looked so amiable that I signaled to him to stop, and by gesticulations explained I wanted to take his photo. We carried on the conversation by signs for some minutes, and any one who had seen us thus animatedly conversing in dumb show would have been amused to hear him remark in perfectly good English as the shutter snapped, "'Will you send me one?' The photo came out well, and I did send him one. I hope he appreciated it. One day I wandered down the far side of the ridge into the plain below. I passed two unfinished pagodas guarded by the usual red-eyed leogryphs. By the side of one of them was a large, weather-stained gamp umbrella, and the voice of the Burman to whom it belonged came to me in a monotonous sing-song as he made his devotions. The Burman is not supposed to pray, Mungapi had told me, but merely to refresh his memory by repeating the law, and he should offer praise, but there is no doubt that their devotions are indistinguishable from prayers. Human nature could not live by repetition and praise alone. Further on I passed a Pungyi with his begging-bowl on his morning round. At the same time a snake startled me by gliding across the path right under my feet, but a native woman ran to look at it and showed by signs it was harmless. The plain at the base of the hill was grassy and open, cut up by wheel-tracks and lined by a tangle of scrubby bushes, so that on the whole it had a good deal the appearance of a Surrey common. On examination, however, every single plant and tree is different from those to which we are accustomed. It is only at a distance or in the mass such a delusion is possible. The ground at my feet was covered with large, richly colored, deep red pods belonging to a mighty fig tree. This shaded a group of zayats, or rest houses, put up for the accommodation of those who came to carry out the last ceremonies in connection with their friend's burial, for the Burmese burial ground was close at hand. The graves were mostly unmarked, 
but some had hideous heavy altar tombs singularly resembling those to be seen in english churchyards i did not however often wander down the hill into the plain i preferred to walk along the heights of the ridge with the rolling plain lying spread out at my feet like a map these heights are crowned by three sets of pagodas the nearest of them rises high above the pathway and can only be reached by a flight of steep and precipitous steps of red brick much broken and worn the platform surrounding the pagoda is also old and crumbled with grass springing up between the stones the fascination of the place is indescribable i went there many times for there i could be utterly alone perched high on the very crown of the hill with the majestic blue distances spreading before me to seeming infinity as i sat there on new year's day i could hear the tinkling of the pagoda bells high overhead in the ethereal blue ringing sharply sweet above the tearing sound made by the wind in the broad-leaved palms pagoda bells were one of the most satisfactory fulfillments of anticipation they are set on the metal hati or umbrella which crowns the spire of every pagoda and are rung by the action of the wind as it wafts past them the sound is sometimes unheard for it may be lost in the noise of the throng below and if the pagoda be in a sheltered spot the tongues are not so easily moved to utterance but here out in the high hillside with no scrambling of feet or droning of voices to dull their magic they spoke straight to the heart of me telling i know not what strange secrets of the east sometimes they clashed all together and then there was heard the sleepy tinkle of one dropping to silence gently sighing away but before it quite ceased another rang out thin sweet and insistent as if it would be heard and quite suddenly the sound broke off the bells had tolled enough the old pagoda was once gilt all over but is now sadly worn and dilapidated the gold leaf has peeled off leaving great patches as i sat and looked at it the faraway voices of the little scholars came faintly wafting upward from the pungyi chung down below and a salmon-pink flower fell silently from its slender stem on a hibiscus drooping over the parapet near i wandered round and peeped into the four shrines which flanked the pagoda at the four cardinal points white and dim images of colossal buddhas peered back at me at various places on the platform are large sacred bells slung between two uprights a mop-headed boy who had apparently sprung out of the pavement consented to stand by one pillar as i photographed the bell after this he followed me round and whenever he got a chance peered into the camera at about two inches distance as if he expected to find a picture of himself there in a sort of shed running along two sides at an angle is a weird and interesting set of carved wooden figures about a third life-size representing scenes in the life of the buddha i got a photograph of this too by giving the film a longish exposure the meaning of the figures i do not know there are three shiny black ones almost skeletons that must have a curious story attached to them further along the ridge at a considerable distance is the white pagoda which is of dome or bell shape and having been recently recoated with white chunum it absolutely shines out against the brilliant sky i saw it several times once in the evening when it glowed with the reflection of the orange-yellow light huge crows seated in the niches looked colossal by the contrast of their sable on the snow while the brown skins of the pungis and the dusky yellows of their robes were startling against the purity of the background the last and most important pagoda on this ridge is that i had already visited with the mungapi it stands very high and is reached by steep flights of steps those on the side away from the town are extraordinarily precipitous and make one shudder to look down them the sunsets at mulmain i never saw equaled anywhere else not even in the red sea we used often to drive in the evenings along the strand or river front a broad road which is the fashionable mulmain promenade 
it is not an attractive place for being shut in by the houses and the ridge on the land side it gets no breeze the way is rendered perilous by the bicycles ridden by eurasian boys and girls on either side of the road without the least regard to rules and by badly driven tika garries crammed with burmans while the dust rises in clouds but the sunsets seen across the wide river redeem all the pink of these is not the same salmon pink we are accustomed to associate with sunsets in england but a rose-coloured flush often running into pale yellow well have i since understood why a particular kind of japanese kimono in yellow silk over a pink lining is called an evening sky kimono many burmese silks seem to have been steeped in sunsets one of a gorgeous apricot color to be bought in mandalay turns lemon yellow in certain lights and has warm shadows a fact not wholly accounted for by discovering that the threads of the warp are of pink set in a saffron woof occasionally the sunsets took the form of expanding bars of light radiating like the spokes of a wheel clear-cut as a red-hot iron one morning I begged the services of Mrs. M.'s second boy, whom I afterwards engaged as my own retainer, to act as interpreter, and sallied forth into the town to try and get a few photographs of street scenes. Any one who has tried in like circumstances will know the difficulties I had to contend with. The drawback of a too powerful sun was paramount. We would enter a long street and find one side, the sunny side, lying white and bare and deserted, and the other, black by reason of the heavy shadow, alive with people. There were little brown girls with babies on their hips, old grandmothers sitting in doorways, children sprawling in the roadway with paria dogs, all in deep shade, to stop and ask, through the interpreter, that they would keep still while I took a photograph by exposure, had one of two results. Either they fled like frightened rabbits, or the more educated understanding the camera stood bolt upright like ramrods, and all naturalness in the picture was lost. If only one were invisible, it would not be so difficult. But the sight of my standing ready with the camera was enough to make them all uncomfortable and stiff at length i saw two well-dressed girls get out of a gary and go into a store so i followed them and asked them if they would be taken one assented cheerfully the other required some persuasion but both were stiff as bolts when the shutter was snapped i came across another group after much wondering and by explaining the situation through the boy at great length got them to stand still just as i was about to take the photo a proud father thrust a hideous little native boy of about three years old dressed in a peaked cap and a serge sailor suit three sizes too big for him and with a startling hiatus of brown skin between tunic and knickers into the middle i had to make signs that he should be taken away and to salve the parents feelings explained that i saw so many boys dressed like that in england it was not interesting to me Further on, several girls, who had been to the bazaar, were sitting on the shady side of the street, with their big baskets at their feet. I tried to get them to move just a little way into the sun. They laughed merrily, shaking their heads violently, and as the refusal was evidently dictated by coyness, I wasted a good deal of persuasion on them. By the time I gave them up in despair and turned away, I found the whole street blocked by a deeply interested and attentive crowd mostly composed of native coolies. I hailed a gary to get out of it, and let the garywalla go where he pleased. Some distance away, I passed a better class house, and saw some well-to-do people with two children outside. I was getting desperate at the small result of such a tedious morning's work. So I stopped the gary, jumped out, and began the usual explanations. These people were quite willing to oblige me, and responded at once, even understanding my attempt to pose them by making one child sit down. The younger one, by a delightful childish gesture of nervousness at the moment of being taken, made a very natural picture. Then we went on, once more, the boy hanging on at the back of the gary, and presently came into the native quarter, 
a part almost wholly given over to the natives of India, with rows of similar tenements, open in front almost like sheds. On one of these I saw advertised in English, lodging house for twenty persons, four rooms. As the whole building was of the smallest, presumably one room was divided into four by extempore partitions. But so much of the life is carried on in the roadway that floor space is not essential. In the mornings the people perform their own or their children's toilets in full view of all the passers-by. Truth to tell, there is not much toilet to make, where the children are concerned. A little check shirt, ending just where, according to European notions, it should begin, was quite a grand dress. Many of the little round-bodied, beady-eyed imps had nothing on at all, save a string of beads and a few silver bangles. In the evenings groups of them surrounded the hydrants, with their lank black hair falling in soaked rat-tails, their bare brown bodies shining with the wet, dancing beneath the welcome gush of cool water. Even men and women come to the hydrants, though they always keep on their garments, which, being of cotton, are none the worse for a wash at the same time as their owners. The little Burman girls of six or seven wear lungis like their parents, and it is a comical sight to see them drawing them up and tucking them in with all the skill and nonchalance of their mothers. The delights of Moulmain were many and varied. One was my first introduction to a boxwalla, or native silk merchant, who brings round his wares to the bungalows, and, untying mighty bales on the veranda, converts it into a sea of billowy waves of colour. The man who came regularly to Mrs. M.'s house was a swarthy ruffian called Siramul, a clever trader and one honest according to his lights, or his self-interest. He turned up one morning attended by two almost naked coolies who carried his goods, and when we went down to the veranda we found him there, complacently settled for the whole day if we liked. No hurry. The joy of sales lies in the bargaining and the Oriental would feel sadly defrauded of his rights, if the Mimsab did not know enough to argue with him. The pleasure of carrying off the money of a greenhorn would hardly be compensation for the utter dullness of the transaction. I would have been that greenhorn, but I had luckily the advice of one well-skilled in trading and prices, and it was as good as a play to hear the desultory conversation that went on between my friend and Siramul, each side feigning perfect indifference as to the result. It ran something in this way. How much is that green bokara silk? That men sob, very good silk, most rich at three rupees a yard. He unrolled a length of glorious colored material. Three rupees? I never heard of such a thing. Why, I get as good as that in Rangoon for two. Besides, it is not a good color, and there is a mark in it. Mimsab has said, the man laid it aside, as if the matter were ended, and rolled out, with a flourish of his hand, a soft cloud of blue chiffon-like material. That pineapple silk, Mimsab. Yes, I know. It does to trim hats, but it's very flimsy. How much? That Mimsab is one rupee the yard. A rupee. I'll give you eight annas. Well, Mimsab, just for luck to begin by, Mimsab shall have for eight annas the yard. How many? He measured the piece. There are seven yards and a half. I don't want more than seven. You can give me in the extra bit if you like. He looked unutterable reproach, but tossed the piece aside as bought, and so it went on, with long intervals during which neither side said anything at all. We departed to have breakfast, and returned to find the man still there and immovable, and the waves of color still illuminating the shadows of the veranda. There was glorious silver-blue Burmese silk, enough for a dress, for eighteen rupees. It lay against the dull green bokhara. There was a rich canton tussor gleaming against a peculiarly royal flame color. Saffron was intermingled with pale mauve. It seemed as if the man knew how to make each color yield its best by placing it near its complement, though his hand apparently threw so carelessly. He had not only Burmese silks, but others from Japan, India, 
china, and much glorious handworked stuff, such as a kimono covered with butterflies, every one different in design, and a pure silk blouse length with daintily worked storks in flight across the front. The peculiarity of the Burmese silks is, say those who have tested them, that they never cut, and that the colors stay fast through any amount of washing. This, no doubt, is because they are handmade, and the dyes are pure vegetable. English-bought silks in Burma are hopeless. They go directly to tatters and rags. In the end, I spent a great deal more than I had intended to do, but as, on average, we got each article at about two-thirds the price the man asked, and generally had the best part of a yard thrown in, I do not think we did badly. But I did not get all my silks from Sirumul. For some I went to the bazaar. The bazaar is a wonderful sight. It is dirty, noisy, crowded, but it was one of the places where I learned the most, and seemed to get right down among the people as I did nowhere else. The front, which is in the principal street, looks like a row of untidy stalls or open shops. There are sacks and bottles and barrels, and every sort of litter blocking the spaces between these, which give access to the bazaar. Inside the building is a mighty raftered shed, very dark but airy. The ground is dirty and uneven, so that we had to take some care where we stepped, and our movements were hampered by a rapidly growing crowd of coolies, each with a huge basket competing for the job of carrying any goods we might buy. In the interests of peace and quiet, as well as to prevent our heels being too closely followed, we selected one young stripling, slim and well-formed, wearing all his worldly wealth in the form of a belt of silver discs. The bazaar is divided into alleys, lined by a kind of continuous raised divan, on which traders sit cross-legged with their wares on shelves behind them. This was so, at least, in the first section, where cloths and silks and prints and other materials were sold. A great many of the men keeping these stalls were natives of India, and among them the most popular costume appeared to be an English white shirt worn outside a lungi or pair of trousers. Though we experienced a good deal of jostling and crowding in the bazaar, none of it was rude or intentional. It was either because the people were so anxious to get a look at us, or because they were pressed on by others from behind, and they were all most good-humoured and smiling. We were the only Europeans present, and I should judge that the place was seldom visited by Europeans. It differs altogether from the large, clean, well-lighted building at Mandalay, where any European can walk with perfect ease. At Moulmain I was fortunate enough to have with me a lady who was as much at home in Hindustani as in English, who knew every turn and stall in the bazaar, and who was the personification of good temper. She helped me to choose the silk I wanted for a lungi, and told me the value of the material, which was a thick, rough quality, generally sold in lengths of three yards for this purpose. The two lengths I eventually bought were both shot with gold in a wonderful way, though the ground of one was nasturtium color and the other a deep lilac. For these I paid six rupees each. While the bargaining over the transaction went on, the owner of the stall sat in apparent indifference, merely indicating by the faintest perceptible nod whether he agreed to any price when his assistant turned to him for directions. Then we passed on into the grain department, where the stalls were nearly all kept by Burmans, many of them girls, and at our appearance the excitement was great. It rose to fever pitch, and there was a regular buzz when I borrowed a high stool, for I had no tripod, and, propping up the camera, made ready to take a photo of a little Burmese girl sitting on piled-up sacks in charge of great bowls of grain. She was smoking an enormous cheroot, but put it down and looked on almost composedly at my preparations, evidently enjoying her importance immensely. I signed to her to take the cheroot up again, and requested her to keep still, as I had to give the photo a long exposure. When I had finished, I turned to behold one of the most amazing sights. Not only were the alleyways thronged with an eager crowd, 
but on all points of vantage, steps, shelves, stalls, even rafters, up to the very roof, was a semicircle of dark, half-clad figures, punctuated by white teeth and gleaming eyes. If I could only have taken the scene as I saw it then, but even as I looked they melted away magically. We passed on, seeing displayed for sale all sorts of queer things, bowls full of tiny seeds called tali, to be ground into oil, the bark of the tree from which Thanaka, the favorite face-paste, is made, ground up and mixed with water. It is said to be very cooling in cases of prickly heat, but that is not why the girls wear it. It is because they wish to appear fair. A grinning old Pungi, with hollows like pits appearing on his skinny shoulders, begged from us. I must say, this was an isolated instance. Pungis are not supposed to have any money, and I was never asked for alms even when I penetrated into their monasteries. From the drug store, smelling with the condensed odor of seventy chemist's shops, we went on into an unroofed alley, one of several which intersect the bazaar. Here, in the checkered light and shade, men were busily engaged in pounding up drugs in mortars. I took a photo of them, and was then approached by a queer little individual, who explained that he was a doctor, and would much like to be photographed, too. Of course all this was done through the interpreter. None of the people spoke English. We came out, right through the bazaar, to the other side abutting on the river. Wide openings showed the brilliant sunlight on the water, so strong that it made one blink after the dimness passed through. There were numbers of sampans and dinghies, waiting at the slime-covered steps to unload piles of shiny dark-green watermelons. They would have made fine pictures, but, alas, as so often happened, it was all against the sun. The inside of the corridor gallery seemed to be given up to refreshment stalls. One very fat woman had before her tin pans, in which were diamond-shaped wedges of rice pudding, at one pice apiece. A pice equals a farthing. We watched her for a little time, and saw her serve several customers. There was a bowl of tea, another of hot water, and a third of milk, and she ladled some from each impartially into a smaller bowl, and then gave it to her customer, half a great cartwheel of flat biscuit for two pice. At another stall the comestibles were more savory. There were all sorts of little dishes filled with highly seasoned dark-colored meats, fish, and hard-boiled eggs cut in half. Nearly everything was soaked in curry powder and condiments. Horrible decaying fish formed a prominent article of diet. Many of the people who came to buy food were natives of India, and it was noticeable that the things were not handed to them in the stall-keeper's fingers, but each was allowed to take his own. We have not arrived at so much nicety even in our London tea-shops. Then we passed into the fruit and vegetable market, where on every side lay the unknown. Great masses of finger-like stuff resembling coral, huge bunches of gargantuan horseradish, branching stalks with clusters of green and yellow fruit, like little pears from which is made beetle for chewing. Masses of watermelons were cut open, and showed such delightful rose-pink that I was tempted to buy one, but found the only taste a faint flavor of holly or ivy. A little Burmese girl was sitting amid piles of sacks and baskets filled with a small fruit like a little red pear. These were called rose-apples, and she put half a dozen into my hands for a pice, but they had less taste than a turnip. There were calabashes and pumpkins in plenty, and quantities of round things about the size of potatoes, but of a lovely plum color. These are vegetables named bringals, which frequently appears at table, and rather resembles a parsnip in taste. There were also ladies' fingers, like large, well-developed specimens of the lords and ladies of our childhood. As a vegetable, these are very good. The fish market produced nothing of much interest, except prawns the size of lobsters. The butcher's stall, kept by Chinese, for the Burmans would not follow such a trade, was in a corner, and then in one of the outer courts we came upon other Chinamen eating their food with chopsticks. I got a snapshot at them, amid consuming laughter. They evidently considered it a tremendous joke. 
Someone told me that a Chinaman thinks he loses a soul every time he is photographed, but as he has seven, he does not worry much about one more or less. When I had thoroughly studied the teeming life of the bazaar, I wanted to go into a chung, or monastery, and see what the life of the monks was like. This I did not find difficult, for the Burmans are by no means averse from strangers entering their holy precincts, though sometimes they objected to me as a woman going into the innermost shrine. Ma Kin Li invited us to meet her, and go to a chung to see the lying in state of a sada, or bishop, a very holy man who had just died. According to custom, his body, preserved in honey, would be kept for a year or more, and then burnt with great ceremony, but at the time he was merely lying in state in a gilt coffin. It was standing under a canopy which looked like a four-post bed, and was surrounded by offerings from the faithful. In Burma the merit of the gift varies according to the sanctity of the receiver, so you gain much more by making a present to a holy man than to a beggar. All around were many gaudy parasols with little bits of tinsel hanging from them. The canopy was covered with silk of different colors, and as the pillars of the room were made of mirror mosaic, the general effect was as unlike a European idea of a chamber of mourning as it well could be. A table covered with lamps stood at the foot of the canopy, for lamps rival clocks as appropriate offerings to the Pungis. On the veranda outside Chinese lanterns swung in the wind. The Pungis, of whom there were several in attendance, made no objection to my taking a photograph of the scene, and two of them even stood obligingly in the foreground. I was told on good authority that the Pungis of Burma have a high reputation, and keep their vows, but I was not personally prepossessed by their appearance. It seems impossible that their easy idle life can be conducive to the growth of morality. They have strict rules such as not eating after midday and not receiving money. Among other things, they are not supposed to look at a woman, and the large palm-leaf fans they are frequently seen carrying are not, as might be supposed, to shield their shaven heads from the sun, but to hold up when a woman passes, so as to shield them from the too dazzling effects of her beauty. Quote, the Book of the Law says that, even if a Pungyi's mother should fall in the ditch, he must not give her his hand to pull her out. He may hold out a stick, or let her seize the hem of his robe, and even then he must figure to himself that he is pulling at a log of wood. End quote. Credit to Burma, a handbook, by Sir J. G. Scott, K.C.I.E. The Pungyis do no work, but sally forth each morning with their begging bowls, as a matter of form, to receive the offerings of the faithful. Very often they are accompanied by a little neophyte, whom I have seen staggering under the weight of two heavy bowls, filled with food slung at each end of a bamboo, while the Pungyi himself stalks serenely ahead. A great many of the Burmese boys are still educated in the Chungs, learning to read and write Burmese, and to understand the simplest elements of arithmetic, and a knowledge of the Buddhist law. This is about all they do learn, and it is taught in a curious mechanical way, by the little pupils lying full length on their stomachs, and repeating in a loud sing-song the Burmese characters written for them on steatite slates with sharp styles. But in places like Moulmain, where there are very large English schools, by far the greater number of boys prefer to be educated in them, for here they can learn enough to be clerks in government service. One day I wandered by myself into the mission schools of the SPG, the third largest in the town, containing three hundred boys or more, whose fathers are in good position, and pay for their admission, but there are only a very few girls, as in spite of the very favorable position of women in Burma, and their business capacities, education is still considered unnecessary for them. I saw both the boys and the girls playing in their respective parts of the grounds. The former, to our thinking, look very like girls, with their funny little top-knots of hair. Numbers of the boys now, however, adopt the European fashion, and crop their hair, even though they retain the lungi. It seems almost as if Eastern men felt the trousers 
are not seemly, for I several times saw better-class natives wearing trousers with a piece of material swathed around them, and one man had on a pair of tweed trousers and a heavy piece of tweed cloth folded over them, under a burning sun, with the thermometer somewhere about a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. It is the Burmese fashion that every boy should be tattooed from the waist to below the knee as soon as ever he is able to bear it. Up-country every Burman is so adorned, but like many old customs this is dying out in the large towns of the South. It is such an agonizing ordeal that it can only be done a little bit at a time, and the boy is given opium to drug him while it goes on. Sometimes he nearly dies from it. The effect, when completed, is exactly that of a pair of skin-tight blue breeches, and, as seen among the coolies who tuck up their lungies into a loin-cloth while they work, is quite effective. There are numbers of half-castes in the SPG school, besides pure Burmans. The Burmese look down on natives of India, yet the girls do occasionally intermarry with them, and are glad to get a Chinese husband, for the Chinese are frugal and much more hard-working than the Burmans. The offspring of these marriages is divided between the races of the parents, the girls wearing Burmese clothing, and the boys Chinese. In the school, though, English is taught. The lessons are in Burmese in the lower standards, but in the highest standards all the lessons except the actual Burmese one are given in English. There are some big fellows in these divisions, and on the blackboard I saw fairly advanced algebraical and mathematical problems. Among the scholars I noticed some with most extraordinary hair-dress, the hair being shaved in a great bare patch, running back from the forehead over the crown like a gulf. These children, I was told, were Coringis. At Moulmain there are generally a few showers and a certain cloudiness just about Christmas, but this did not happen when I was there, and every one kept repeating that a very hot, quote, cold weather they were having, from one eighty to two hundred inches of rain fall every year in six months, and then for six months there is practically none. The rain comes so refreshingly after the hot weather that it is welcomed by the inhabitants, even though it is in too great quantity. Every ditch is filled and flows merrily. The grass springs up so that its growth can almost be seen, and the trees burst out in flower. One beautiful tree, the Amherstia, takes its name from a town some miles south. It was not in flower while I was at Moulmain, but I saw it afterward with its blossoms drooping in fiery clusters. The differences in rainfall in Burma are startling and inexplicable. Rangoon gets about eighty to ninety inches a year, while northwards is a dry zone stretching for about a hundred fifty miles. This includes Mandalay, where the average rainfall is no more than fifteen inches. At one place in the southern border of the dry zone, called Pienmana, one side of the river gets sixty to eighty inches, and the other only ten to fifteen, and for this no reason is apparent. Whoever knows anything about Burma has heard of the Bombay-Burma Trading Corporation, which was established in the country before the English annexed it. As I was staying in the house of a manager of the corporation, I naturally heard a good deal about the teak and forest industry, which is of exceptional interest. He told me that there were twenty jungle elephants belonging to the corporation to be seen near Moulmain. They were collected together before being taken up country to camp, and it was a most unusual chance to be able to see so many all at once. I agreed readily with the suggestion that we should go to see them, and on Sunday morning, early, we started. The day was heavenly, with a vivid amber light that made every twig stand out as if bathed in radiance, and the air had a crystalline clearness. We drove between lines of native huts, where numbers of people were squatting in front, combing and cleaning each other's lank black hair. There were men bringing water in kerosene tins, girls with baskets of plantains on their heads. Two men were staggering along with a heavy jar of frothy toddy slung on a pole between them. Others were hawking about crates of cheap English enamel goods. 
bullocks were feeding on the seeds of the toddy palm, which looked like small turnips. In front of some of the houses was a large, carefully sketched pattern of white chalk reaching out into the roadway. It was designed to keep the devils off. When we came to the end of the village, we left the carriage behind, for it could go no further, owing to the roughness of the road, and we started on foot through the paddy fields. The threshing of the paddy was being carried out in a simple fashion that recalled biblical stories. Seven bullocks marched abreast, round and round, treading the husk with their broad hoofs. Afar off we saw the elephants, huge creatures, feeding in the fields, though, truth to tell, the stubble was scanty, and there seemed little enough for them to satisfy their capacious appetites upon. Elephants are getting scarcer in Burma yearly, and their value rises accordingly. Numbers are caught in the government kedars in the north, but out of these such a large percentage dies that the net result is small. Breeding is slow work, inasmuch as at the best it means one cub in three years, and after its birth the mother is incapacitated for work for eighteen months. A young one does not begin work at all until he is six, and is not of full use until he reaches thirty years, so the game is not much more profitable than that of planting trees, and is carried on mainly for the benefit of those that come after. Female elephants now fetch somewhere about three hundred pounds, and males double as much. The trained elephants, of course, are even more valuable, and their lives are on the average shorter than the jungle elephants. Elephant stealing is one of the greatest difficulties the corporation has had to contend against. Every animal is not only branded, but measured on a method corresponding to the Bertillon system, girth, tusks, marks, and all, and yet he frequently disappears, and is not again recognized. The elephants I saw were all hobbled, and one, a rogue by nature, was further tethered, and did his best to express his resentment emphatically when anyone came near him. I got a good photograph of one fine female, but she, poor thing, was dead within the week, having been stung on the foot by a snake. In spite of this apparently tough hide, an elephant is really so sensitive that even mosquitoes annoy him. The Mahouts, or Uzis, were a rough-looking set of men, with rather a Mongolian cast of face, light-colored and medium-sized. They belonged to the race of Talaings, also called by ethnologists Mons, who were the original owners of the land before the Burmans drove them further and further south. They are now only found in small numbers. The district manager, who was with us that morning, was going to start off the next day in charge of the elephants and this savage crew, and convoy them up to the camp, a month's journey away. He did not know the way, and the only guidance he had was from rough maps made by the corporation officers themselves. Sixty miles by the way lay in Burma, and then he crossed over into Siam, where there were no roads at all. He seemed to look upon the whole thing as a most ordinary performance, but I can't say I did. He was, of course, taking his whole outfit, bedding, tent, food, and other necessities, and he explained to me what a severe blow the Chicago revelations had been to him and his fellows, who are so largely dependent on the provisions they carry with them. Of course, they shoot what game they can, and they occasionally get fish, but the supply of these things is limited, and sometimes rations are very short indeed. He told me laughingly he had tried monkey, which was disgusting, and lived for a week on owls. There was nothing I enjoyed more than hearing the yarns of the BBTC men, telling of the wild life in the jungle. But it is not easy to get them to talk, for they are mostly of the type that do things and do not chatter yet I heard enough by dint of adroit questions to make me understand why they are generally so resourceful and self-reliant. This great corporation, which has done so much to open up the country, and to give the natives a good impression of the white sahib's honor, began by getting concessions from Thebaw. It is tightly hemmed in by government restrictions nowadays, overlooked by forest officers, forced to plant trees where it cuts them down, 
and only to cut those that are allowed, which is all no doubt very good in its way, as Burmese forests are not inexhaustible. The chief work is, of course, with the teak, that splendid wood to be found everywhere in Burma, hard and durable, with a grain-like oak. It is this which makes the simple and rough-dacked bungalows and circuit-houses look comfortable enough, whereas, were the uncovered walls and floor of deal, the effect would be much barer. The trees are girdled and felled, dragged by elephants to the creeks, and sent down by water. Every one is numbered and measured. Most of the work has to be done in the wet weather when the creeks are flooded, and the men are soaked from morning till night. As one of them expressively explained to me, it is not only you never have a dry stitch on you, but you break through jungle where, on every leaf, the leeches are gaping for your blood. This is a touching picture, but one's sympathies rather inclined to the leeches, of which only one in a million can fulfill his highest destiny. When the country near the Salween, which ran through the wild Shan states never conquered by the Burmese, was first opened up by the corporation, there was excitement enough and to spare. Even now it makes an adventurous heart pant to hear of the wonders lying hid in this immense tract. Tigers, panthers, pythons, and black bears live here and flourish, and there are enormous caves into which a huge river runs and disappears. My host had taken a particular interest in this curious formation, and again and again tried to penetrate into the cave, which was full of enormous stalactites, but the torches got damp, the air foul, and there were great rocks to scramble over with crevasses between, and when a stone was dropped it chinked against the sides, but was never heard to reach the bottom, so the exploring party abandoned their efforts. There are sulphur springs, boiling hot, and a mud volcano, which rises up in a cone, like a gigantic umbrella only at full moon, and then drops down again. Many a fool buffalo has mistaken it for a mud wallow, and never been seen again. On the same great plateau, there are heard strange rumblings and noises below the surface, as if immense blocks of stone drop down forever. The natives aver the place is haunted, and will not go there. And when two Englishmen tried to sleep here, they lay awake all night, and in the morning, with one consent, fled, filled with an uncanny feeling they were loath to explain, even to each other. The thing which most surprised me in this account of jungle life was the fact that the forest managers seldom ride on the elephants. They use them for transport only, and themselves stalk ahead, gun on shoulder, ready to shoot at anything that presents itself. The march is very slow, about twelve or fourteen miles a day, and through thick jungle much less. I could quite realize from their word-painting how delightful it is to have outstripped your elephants on the day's march, and reached a place for camp, weary and worn and soaking, with maybe your last cheroot in your pocket, and the knowledge that you may have to remain without bed or fire or food all night. The agonizing indecision as to whether you shall drag yourself back to meet the transport, or, if by so doing, you will run more chance of missing them, and the joy that fills your soul when the faint, far-off tinkle of the elephant bell warns you they are approaching. On the march, one great source of trouble is the difficulty of inducing the elephants to cross rivers. At times they will go all right, at other times solidly refuse and as much as a fortnight or three weeks may be wasted on the banks. There are several recognized methods of dealing with this phase of obstinacy. The animals may be driven forward with torches at night, or towed across by the corporation launch, or, if the river is rising, they may be induced to walk on to a large flat raft, where they can be fastened until the water comes up and floats them off, but all these methods involve loss of time and infinite patience. The forest work continues right around the year, except for a few months in summer. The Burmans are wonderful men with an axe, using a small narrow one like a chisel, but they are so absolutely accurate in their blows that they fell a tree very quickly, leaving the stump as smooth as a table. However, on the other hand, they are not much use at creek work, and have no sense in a jam. 
A few of the best elephants trained for forest work are perfectly marvelous in their human sagacity. They will work by themselves for a long time without supervision in the riverbed, feeling a jammed posse of logs with their trunks, touching this one and that one, and at length getting hold of one which they know by instinct is the keystone of the mast. They pull it out and fly for their lives to the banks, and down comes the whole avalanche of mighty tree trunks. Sometimes when the logs have collected in thousands, the dense black clouds northward bespeak rain, and a freshet is expected. This frequently happens at night, but tired or not, the men must be up and about, torches are lit, and all night long the weary work goes on. The chief nuisance at these times is the plague of bugs and beetles of all sorts that swarm around the lights. Every winged thing, from mosquitoes upward, hangs in thick black curtains around the heads and torches, and they must be beaten off with the hands. Indeed, it is the small fry that render life in the jungle at times almost unendurable. Besides the flying insects, there are the ticks, little pinheads that attach themselves to the skin in hundreds and dig inwards. For this reason each man carries with him a square bit of Williston canvas to sit down upon. Another great annoyance is the large hairy caterpillar, infinitely more poisonous and irritating than the creatures we know. His favorite game is to crawl along a man's collar. The man rubs back, bestrewing himself unconsciously with a myriad irritable hairs. The same thing happens on the other side. At last he grabs upward, getting the palm of his hand likewise covered with hairs, and finds that, for the hundredth time, he has fallen a victim to the hairy caterpillar. In about a quarter of an hour he begins to feel the effects of the encounter, and for days afterwards his neck is raw and painful. In the jungle the BBTC men wear wide silk trousers and loose coats Chinese fashions, so that their clothes do not protect them much from these pests. Bees are always very troublesome, and seem to have a particular antipathy to elephants, for when they hear the elephant bells they will sometimes descend from the trees in a swarm. Then the poor beasts, maddened by the stings, planted in the hundreds of tender joints on their sides, fly trumpeting in every direction, and it is sometimes days before they can be got together again. One trip my host had a lively time from this cause. He was little way from his elephants, and heard them trumpet and stampede, and he dashed up a dry creek in time to run right into an angry swarm of bees. There was but little water in the creek, yet he made for a two-foot pool, and lay in it even to the tip of his nose. When, after holding his breath until he was almost suffocated, he ventured to raise his head, he found the whole surface of the pool covered with floating drowning bees. He was penetrated all over with stings from head to foot, his whole body swelled up, and in the forearm alone he counted seventeen. The same trip he was going along a narrow ledge between a cliff and a precipice, with the elephants in front, when he was attacked by wasps, and finally he ran his head into a red ant's nest. Red ants get their nippers buried deep, and must be detached one by one. Who would be a B.B.? End of chapter 4